You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to today's seminar, 2021 and beyond, and cash management in Europe. My name is Philip Fellows and I'm the Regional Head of Cash Management for HSBC, and I'm talking to you from London today. I would like to start maybe by introducing the series. So this is actually the first of four webcasts that uh, we're going to run. Uh, and this today is, is an exclusive event for our US headquartered corporates and their subsidiaries. And what we want to do is to take you, our audience, uh, on a journey through the European cash management landscape and, and demystify the region a bit, if we can, uh, for our you know, friends across the pond and, and zoom in on opportunities that hopefully you can, you can leverage. You know, we're joined by, by many of our clients uh, and also industry guests. And, and what we want to do is explore the latest trends in the region and consider what they mean for, from a U.S. corporate perspective. So we'll start by looking at the impact of 2020, which was an exceptional year, as I'm sure you can, you can all agree, and the evolving regulatory landscape in Europe. And we will then, in the next session, look at optimizing cash flow and the solutions that treasurers can opt for. In our third series, we will then look at the journey on the wider theme of treasury transformation, uh, where we've seen a number of our European corporates uh, leverage uh, SEPA, centralization structures, liquidity solutions to help streamline their activities. And then we're going to end the month on the series of the four by looking into the future with a session on digitalization and innovative solutions that we're seeing in Europe, uh, such as open banking and API technology. Now, turning back to today's session, I'm delighted to be joined by a panel. I have three, uh, three people here with me today. First of all, I'd like to introduce Easton Dixon, uh, who is the, the global treasurer of Bain & Company, uh, who I'm delighted has agreed to join us today. Uh, also, Tim Bartlett, who is from our global liquidity solutions team uh, based in London, and Jack Sweet from our payments advisory team, also based in London. Uh, and what we're going to run is, is a panel discussion today. Uh, and, you know, I, think, I hope we will expect to hear about Europe's distinct regulatory landscape. I think Brexit may come up and I'm not sure we can have a European seminar without mentioning the Brexit word. Uh, and, you know, how the pandemic has, has shaped the landscape. So with that, maybe I'll kick off uh, and, and let's kick off with a, with a first question just to set the scene, if uh, you like, in, in Europe. Um, so, Tim, maybe I could come to you first and, and ask, I think, what do you see as the big topics that U.S. corporates should be aware of when managing their cash in Europe? Yep, thank you, Philip, and uh, good afternoon, uh, everyone, uh, and my thanks for joining as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question, uh, and um, I was thinking about this before we started, Philip, and, and thinking of the climate and the, and the setup in the U.S. and then the way it's been, say, for the last 200-odd years, where you have, without a doubt, one unified country, you know, one very sort of patriotic country, but made up of these different states, which to a certain extent 
you know, can be their own countries, their own uh, economies in their own right. And if you think about what the European Union is from its uh, very conception uh, back in, say, the 1970s and before that, it, it, it's all around uh, a similar kind of state-like structure becoming one uniformed uh, entity in terms of regulation, in terms of laws, in terms of trade and all the things that our customers need to consider uh, today. So that's true of trade, for example. It, it, it's true of, uh, of commercial business. But of course, it's very, very true uh, of the banking and the financial environment. And what we've seen uh, as technology has improved exponentially, say, since the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, what we've seen is regulation uh, evolve and adapt to that change in technology. So within uh, the EU, uh, what is promoted is, a, is an open banking environment. And to be honest, it's just in its early days at the moment. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a second. Um, but things like the use of technology, uh, like uh, um, applied programming interfaces, for example, APIs, uh, which allow third-party providers to access banking data um, and to use that data to service our customers. So if you think about traditionally, banks have always had this uh, stranglehold, if you like, on a critical mass uh, that is their customer base. What the EU are striving to do is to give our customers greater choice, greater flexibility, uh, and, and presumably cost savings as well by allowing third-party providers to access their data and to transact some of those products and services that were traditionally uh, the stronghold of us banks. So this open banking uh, environment has greatly uh, improved uh, the, the customer proposition uh, for, banking, uh, for banking clients and, and for um, customers using the financial services sector. I guess um, the, the, just one sort of more comment on the open banking piece, then I'll talk about the cash management. Uh, I, I guess the real contrast is what is happening in the US at the moment. And, and again, you know, this isn't uh, derogatory about the US in any way, shape or form. Um, but the idea and the concept of open banking is very much that at the moment. It's still very much uh, uh, on paper. And at the moment, because of US regulation, because of US laws, because of those different state laws, it's, it's very, very hard to implement. It doesn't mean that US banks can't have a relationship with a third party provider on behalf of their customers, but it's a lot harder to set up. It's more of a bilateral relationship than umbrella regulation. Uh, and also it utilizes very old fashioned technology such as uh, screen scraping information from a, a website, for example, whereas an API can go in and grab data, uh, specific data straight away. So, so that to me uh, is really one of the big things for, for particularly for our customers in the US to think about because it's maybe a concept that, that is either new to them at the moment or, or completely unfamiliar. In terms of the cash management piece, uh, on a macro basis, that uh, cross-border regulation, that, that all-encompassing uh, regulation across all the member states of the EU means cash can uh, flow freely across borders within the EU as if it was flowing in the same country. It means there's a rationalisation of pricing 
uh, and if you imagine a situation where all of the European Union banks are competing with each other, surely the lowest common denominator uh, must prevail, and that's great uh, for our customers. In terms of traditional cash management tools, uh, again, this open environment means things like physical cash concentration, for example, is a lot easier. The reporting requirements are a lot less onerous. Uh, the taxation implications are a lot less onerous. And in products that may be less familiar to, to our US uh, uh, clients, uh, things like notional pooling, for example, uh, there is a change to the existing regulation that's coming this year uh, that will make notional pooling easier and cheaper for banks to offer. And ultimately that can only pass down to our customers. So it's a very, very exciting time in the EU at the moment. Okay, thanks Tim. Jack, can I turn to you and ask the same question? Yeah, thank you. Because I, I was just gonna say that building on what Tim was just saying about the open regulatory uh, landscape, but also this focus on pan-European uh, solutions. If I think from my perspective of, of the distinguishing characteristics that mark out Europe, especially if we're thinking about it from a, from a US perspective, number one has to be SEPA. SEPA, the single European payments area, which is, for those who are unfamiliar with it, essentially the Europe equivalent of ACH. So it's what we call you know, low value electronic payments with the difference, the important difference that it spans 36 uh, countries and, and territories across, across the region. We in, in Europe are very proud of it. I'm sure you can imagine uh, you know, that, that doesn't happen overnight and some of the challenges on, on setting up an infrastructure where you can make a, uh, a low value payment, a, a step of payment uh, from one of those 36 countries to any, any other of the 36 countries with the same ease of, a, of an ACH uh, payment. The, the second big uh, distinguishing characteristic I think is worth mentioning is, is the use of real-time payments. The use of real-time payments now, it's a, it's a global concept. Indeed, you know, the, the, the US, um, our US friends on the line will, will be familiar with real-time payments because they have their own scheme in the US and, uh, and indeed, you know, HSBC is, is live with that, I'm, I'm proud to say. But as a concept, real-time payments started in Europe. And in fact, in the UK, we've had faster payments, which is our, our domestic real-time payment scheme. We've had that for, for over, over a decade now, and it's well embedded. Uh, it's very popular with our clients for making either um, ad hoc payments, supplier payments, um, or for accessing longer cutoff times because uh, faster payments and real-time payments more generally tend to, to clear on a real-time basis. And that has now proliferated across the world, as I say. So there are well over 40 countries globally that have real-time payment schemes. Importantly though, for, um, for Europe, we now have a SEPA real-time payment scheme. I mentioned SEPA before. So we now have this opportunity to make these real-time uh, payments between any of the 36 countries. And, and again, uh, I'm proud to say that HSBC is live with, uh, with SCT Inst, as we call it. In a number of a number of markets, and and that leads to interesting conversations about okay, well now we have this possibility, you know, what do you do with it? 
And the third thing that I do want to mention while we're talking about, you know, what distinguishes Europe um, has to be the use of checks or rather the comparatively low use of checks if we're compar comparing it with, with the US. You know, the US is, is infamous or uh, uh, for widespread use of use of checks. I think we in uh, in Europe are quite are probably very familiar with payment methods um, in the US because we're all you know consuming these uh, US series during lockdown and uh, and so we see what daily life is like in the US and it's very clear that that payments work differently. It's a different it's a different state of affairs in Europe. Checks are still an important part of the landscape. So to, to give you a sense, um, there are about 450 million uh, checks were written in the UK alone last year, but that is decreasing by give or take 10% every year. You know, so coming down rapidly, and and that 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 landscape varies significantly. So if we compare that with um, you know, I was lucky enough to spend a few years living and working in, in Germany, for example. And despite the fact that I was in banking, I don't think I in my time there saw a single check. So that, that's quite varied across across the landscape. So it, it leads to some interesting questions, especially when we're talking to corporates who are new to Europe of, well, how does that work in practice? And, and what are the what are the alternatives to checks? Uh, I'll leave it there. But those are my initial thoughts on how Europe distinguishes itself. So maybe, Easton, if uh, you're okay, could we turn it over to you? And, and it would be great, I think, to understand a bit, I think, how, you know, whether those topics resonate for you about the European cash management environment. Thanks, Philip. Certainly. And to start with a bit of a humorous point, as Jack was talking about checks, I, I remember with some trepidation that over the past four months, I've had to travel into Boston an hour away from my home during COVID um, protocol to pick up checks. And I'm grateful to our clients for paying us, but <laughs> I'd prefer to avoid the trip if I could. <laughs> but yeah, we are definitely stuck with the check environment. In terms of the points that Jack and Tim mentioned, absolutely, those resonate quite well and I'd echo the open environment across Europe, the, 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 the value of SEPA that we use quite a bit, the ability to, to, to you know, use a cash pool that we have from HSBC. We currently use a hybrid model, so we are combining both physical and notional. And so those are big topics that are positive for us that we embrace quite a bit. On the flip side, just to add a bit of a cautionary note in terms of some of the challenges, I would say that the there are nuances within the market. So there's a lot of similarities, lots of common protocols but we're seeing nuances in different, in various markets where you have to be careful that something that holds in a particular market is not the same in another one. And on the matter of regulation, I do agree that it's an open regulatory environment, but we're watching some of the regulations coming through from the tax side that will affect how we conduct cash management within Europe. So that is something that is quite, um, significant to me at the moment. So I would add those as the cautionary notes. And then the negative rate environment, that it is not only an investment item, but it also affects how you aggregate and how you distribute cash to manage those fees. So I would say, yes, definitely excited about the region, but some, some notes of challenges that we need to manage. Great. Thanks, Ethan. 
So maybe if we look a bit forward, I think, you know, we've touched on, I think, some of the characteristics, right, that sort of distinguish Europe and European cash management landscape. Uh, but, you know, I think in the last year, you know, we've all faced enormous challenges, right, which have, you know, really marked the landscape. I don't know, maybe Easton, if you're happy, I could start with you. Maybe just ask, I think, how, how has the last year been for, been for you as your your role as treasurer, uh, you know, and for Bain and Company, uh, I guess, in, particularly in the context of the of the pandemic. So, first, at a company wide level, we are fortunate that we are a professional services firm, so we were able to continue serving clients with minimal disruption. We couldn't do FaceTime as much as we would like that face to face contact, but we were able to ramp up quite quickly and our clients understood. So we could continue working, getting revenue. And importantly, people like myself or employees were able to work from home. The company moved quickly to enable us with technological equipment. And so we could work. And thanks to HSBC, our other partners on the technology side that banking for us continued without any significant disruptions. The systems work we could transact business without meaningful disruption. So we were fortunate in that regard that as a company, we could survive quite well. At the treasury level, I think it was a great opportunity for treasury to distinguish itself. You know, you're going along day to day and nobody is going to praise you on a daily basis because a bulk file got to its destination. But when things become challenging, if you're able to continue serving the business, that is when you will stand out. And we were able to maintain liquidity by working with our banks and our credit facility side of things to ensure that we were um, accessing liquidity buffers. We were able to ramp up our working capital management to team with our colleagues in FPA and other groups to, to inform leadership about our working capital posture and then work with our HR and other teams on COVID-related risk management. So for us, it was a great time to serve the business and to help navigate a very difficult time. Great, thanks for sharing that with us, Easton. If maybe Tim, can I ask you? You know what I think. What was the impact of COVID on the liquidity space? Uh, yeah, absolutely, and and it was good to hear uh, some of uh, Easton's comments there. Uh, so, so generally, uh, around about the time, I, I guess of the the first idea of a global lockdown, which would have been sort of January, February, like this time last year. Uh, what we saw, um, not just uh, in, the, in Europe, not just in the UK, not just in our other um, centres around um, the world, in Asia and in North America, uh, was um, a, uh, if you like, a, a nervous knee-jerk reaction um, and that was in response to the idea that not necessarily what could happen to long-term economies, uh, but perhaps a liquidity crunch, liquidity drying up in the market. And, and, and you know, banks as well were, were, were nervous of the same thing. And to, to reference something uh, Easton was just saying, uh, I would say all of our customers that, that had credit facilities, not just with us, but with our peers in the banking sector, uh, immediately utilise those facilities to, to the maximum, uh, whether they were revolving facilities, medium-term facilities. 
not because uh, they had a shortfall, but because they wanted to warehouse uh, the liquidity. And it was with us and, again, with the other banks in Europe that they were warehousing that liquidity. Of course, if it was a fear of lack of liquidity, there'd be no point in them tying it up for any length of time. So what it meant was uh, we were sitting on a huge cash pile that was very short dated. Customers were keeping uh, their cash very much, um, to use the terminology of, of uh, our US audience, very much on demand uh, that, so that they could access that cash straight away. Um, I would love to say that that nervousness has subsided. Um, it, it hasn't. You know, sadly, COVID hasn't gone away. We, we are sort of hoping that, that the, the rollout of vaccine uh, will eventually uh, give us some light at the end of the tunnel. But those cash piles still exist. This created, I guess, two dilemmas for our customers. And, and again, to reference something Easton spoke about, I, I was delighted uh, for obvious reasons to hear that, that HSBC tools and systems uh, didn't let him down in any way, shape or form. What, what it meant for our customers is they had to review their working capital cycle, their, the, the, the length of time it took them to uh, uh, you know, change money that they paid out into money that was coming in. Uh, because their customers in turn were being impacted as well. It meant that suddenly that the ability to forecast cash flow became imperative. It always has been with, with any kind of commercial operation, but perhaps never more so on such a short term basis. So going back to Easton's comments, what we saw was a huge take up, for example, of our cash flow forecasting tool, yeah, fortuitously, we've just rolled it out. It, it, it's a great tool. Um, it's, it's fully you know, automated in, in terms of um, items that are going through a customer's ERP. And what it gave them was that confidence that they knew you know, exactly what was not just coming up next month or next week, but tomorrow. That then led to another dilemma. Now they had this big pile of cash, but knew exactly how much they would need uh, any days going forward. What do they do with it? Well, of course, finding a safe home when you've got a lot of cash is difficult because the likelihood is that you have limits for your banking counterparties. Um, what we saw was uh, a lot of usage, again, through one of our platforms uh, of an investment service that takes funds into short-term money market funds. And again, that should resonate uh, with, uh, with our audience today because there's prolific use in the US. So in terms of our customers, there was nervousness. In terms of what they looked for from a bank um, was security, uh, liquidity, and indeed certainty, or as near as could be, around what was being uh, used, what would be required on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we feel we were able to give them that. That left them looking for yield, but still with the liquidity piece. And that's why if you look across um, any stats for last year, the take up on short term money market funds uh, was, was large. And, and that's not that's uh, uh, no surprise, given the liquidity that was awash in the system. Great. Thanks, Tim. So, Jack, can I turn to you a similar question? I said, how has you know, COVID impacted the payments landscape in Europe? Yeah. Um, well, well, I suppose building on what um, Easton and and, uh, and Tim have both said, it, it seems to me that 
you can broadly split it up into the immediate needs um, in the first days and weeks of the the, the pandemic. Um, and and Easton and, and Tim have referred to a, a few things there. From a payments perspective, that was around ensuring that uh, that the corporates people could access accounts, could instruct payments, had the right privileges on their online banking platform, which is you know HSBC Net for us, um, uh, so that they could manage their cash whether they were at home or in the office. It also meant the need to be flexible in how uh, documents were authorized, the ability to move from wet ink to e-signatures, for example. Um, and of course, the big one for payments is the move towards socially distanced payments. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that between the months of February, February to March last year, the the, the volume of cash transactions that HSBC uh, processed in Europe decreased by over 50%, pr pretty much overnight. You know, just a seismic shift in the behavior of, of our clients. Um, now, of course, that's, that's normalizing again, but uh, it, it has then opened up these longer term conversations about, well, you know, what are the alternatives to cash and checks? Um, and, uh, and and then, as as uh, Tim said as well, from a working capital perspective, what are the processes for receivables and payments to make sure that your cash is working for you? How do you reconcile your receivables as quickly as possible, get the invoices ticked off the ledger so that your sales force can get out there um, and, and win more win more business? So. Thanks, uh, Jack. So, so look, I said at the start, we can't have a Europe seminar without talking about Brexit. So I'm going to turn to that topic now. And Easton, I'll come to you first, if that's all right. And, and maybe we could start with, I don't know, what maybe what's your what's your take on Brexit? Uh, <clears throat> I prefer a unified world in that regard, or that a unified region. So I prefer having seamless interactions of people and goods and trade in general but the the region has to make that decision for itself and i i like the fact that there is a deal on the table that hopefully will get us close to what pre-brexit was like in terms of practical things how does trade work how do people move and this morning we saw that bit of news about northern ireland regarding the border my hope is that that you know cool heads will get us to a solution there as soon as possible as well. In terms of Brexit overall, though, for us as a company, when Brexit was coming on stream or we knew it was going to happen, one of the decisions we made was to position our cash pool structure in, in the Netherlands as opposed to in England, because we didn't want to face the uncertainty of what would happen in a post-Brexit world. So for us, there was that practical decision, and we went with a more conservative um, approach. And we certainly were not the only ones doing that. I spoke with, with companies that were doing similar things as well. So you saw that real fallout from Brexit. And 
for us, another consideration is the whole idea of how we deploy employees. As a professional services firm, we want to be able to send talent where it's needed. So if we have a German employee, that is not somebody who's gonna be stuck in Germany working only on German-based cases. If that is a private equity expert and we need a private equity person in the UK, and that's the best person, then we want them to go to the UK. So the ability for our people to move seamlessly is of paramount importance. So that is something we, are, we want to see, and that is something that is essential to our business, as it is for you as well in the type of business that you do. So those would be my, my immediate comments on, on Brexit. Great. Thanks, Ethan. So, Tim, can we turn to you? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I guess, um, uh, you know, in the context we're, we're talking about opportunities in Europe, you, you, you're right, we, we can't ignore Brexit. Uh, and again, I was thinking about this before the, the session started. What it would give, particularly uh, for, for American companies, multinational companies, it, it actually still gives them the, the, the choice they had before. You know, Easton is quite right uh, in as much as how, how could he Brexit-proof um, his pool structure, his cash management structure, uh, and he chose to put it in the Netherlands, uh, and that's great, uh, whereas historically that might have sat in the, in the UK. If you're an American company that is looking to set up now, it, it would depend, I guess, uh, on your geographic reach. Uh, but you can still do business with the UK and you can still do business pretty much as you have done uh, forever with, with the European Union as well. However, the ability for UK licensed banks to offer banking products and services in the EU and conversely, for European licensed banks to offer banking and services in the UK before Brexit was very much built on the premise of them being able to passport their license either into the UK or us into the European Union. Um, and that has gone uh, with Brexit. Our Prime Minister is still hammering out exactly how it will look for financial services. So we still have a, a little bit of breathing space. But what it will most likely mean is that the UK will be restricted in terms of the products and services that it can offer an entity that is incorporated in the European economic area, the, the EU. So again, if it is a, a multinational company that has legal entities that are part of the group companies that have been incorporated in a European Union um, region or country, then it may be difficult for a UK bank, not just HSBC, but any UK bank to offer a full suite of products and services to that entity. Um, and again, uh, going back to uh, Easton's location of his cash management structure, um, for example, uh, one of the legacy cash management products, I've already mentioned it on this, uh, on this call, um, Notional Pooling, very much works on the premise of, of debit balances uh, running alongside credit balances. Uh, whether we can offer overdrafts to European incorporated entities, for example, is unlikely. So it's little nuances like that that have impacted uh, the bank offering, the UK bank offering, uh, because of Brexit. 
Philip, you know, um, from an HSBC perspective, we were actually sort of more fortuitous than good judgment uh, that prior to the Brexit vote, and let's be honest, none of us really thought that the UK would vote to leave the European Union. We already had two licensed entities uh, in the European Union. And what it did was give us the jump on our peers in the UK who didn't have a European licensed entity because it meant that from the day after the vote was announced, we could start beefing up our cash management operations in centres like the Netherlands, where Eastern is, in Ireland, in Paris. We're looking beyond that as well. So, so we were rather fortuitous there. But I guess in summary, for UK banks, it, it is going to become uh, or has become difficult to offer a full gambit of services the light at the end of the tunnel is that because it hasn't been completely defined yet, it may be left to the individual countries to decide how they interact with the UK. And if that happens, we've got some traditional friends in the EU. And Jack, from a payments perspective? Yeah, I mean, from a payments perspective, I think the place to start is with the observation which I hope is clear but nevertheless reassuring that it is still possible, eminently possible, to uh, to make payments between the UK and the EEA. There have been some tweaks that were clear, were always going to be a consequence of the UK ceasing to be an EEA country. You know, I'm, I'm not going to burden people with on the line with, with the details of those but around um, changes in charge code constellations. But it is fair to say, I think, that it is still an evolving picture. Uh, we know, for instance, that there are some banks in some countries, not including HSBC, I should say, that have amended their pricing structure for separate transactions that I mentioned before between the UK and the EEA. You know, the, the dust is still settling. But what I would say is that HSBC is lucky to have a significant presence both in the EEA and in the UK, so straddling the channel. And we're heavily engaged in euro clearing. You know, we process well over a billion SEPA transactions every year. So we're, we're well placed to, to hold our clients' hands, really, through this dynamic landscape. Okay, thank you. So look, we've discussed the challenges. Maybe on the flip side, we should talk a bit about opportunities. Uh, and maybe Easton, I could come to you first and ask you the question, you know, what, what opportunities do you see in, in Europe? So, you know, as a, as a global company, Europe is fundamental to being. We have well-established presence throughout the region and we see it it's firmly embedded in our strategy whether it's our existing our traditional consulting services or the new avenues that we are pursuing um, europe is, is is fundamental so therefore it is our mission as a treasury team to ensure that we are facilitating the business's growth throughout the region and tim champion the idea of technology, so open banking and APIs. And for us, that is significant because right now, when you think about, you know, being offering or, or consulting on technology, we cannot advise our clients without, you know, as we said, eat our own cooking. 
And so we're on that journey ourselves where we're looking at our technology offerings. How do we position ourselves? And especially when you look at within the context of COVID now to be remote, how do you take full advantage of technology to enable you to do what, what's necessary? And so that is something we are going through to say, you know, how do we ramp up? How do we expand our technology platform for ourselves? And a big part of that will be what's available within Europe. So as Tim talked about open banking, which is within the US um, framework as well, we are excited to look at that and to take advantage of it. And connected to that is to, as a treasury group, not to focus so much on just the transactional aspect of treasury or banking, but how do we partner with our thought leaders like yourselves in banking to say, here's our challenge. How do you help us to, to first of all, get the knowledge of what's on stream, what's, what's coming to bear, and how does that work in our environment? So to me, the big opportunity is partnering with our partners about technology. As you hear Tim and Jack talk about the, the you know, what's evolving, whether it's SEPA, whether it's open banking, we want to be tagged on with you to work with that, to co-create, to come up with things that work better for us. And it would be remiss of me not to share a cautionary note again, as even as we talk about opportunities, but I think for my fellow corporates who are in Europe, to really bear in mind the evolving tax issues. I mentioned, you know, two that I'll, I'll share without, don't ask me about the details, but DAC6 and hybrid mismatch rules. These impact how we do cross-border transactions. So you want to make sure you're talking with your tax team, maybe your tax advisors with the banks as well, so that you are not doing transactions that would put you in a bind with the tax authorities. So that's key. We want to be efficient, but at the same time manage that regulatory space. So those would be my, my take there, to focus on the technology and the regulations within Europe. Great, thanks, Lisa. So look, maybe if I quickly ask Jack the same question, and uh, and maybe as I do that, I just to, for the audience, I will open to Q and A after that. So if on on the webcast portal you are able to to type in questions, I can see them uh, myself coming up now as moderator. Uh, so if you do want to ask a question, please uh, please go ahead. Uh, so just a heads up, we will go to that shortly. But maybe Jack and Tim, if I could just quickly ask your take on the opportunities and then we will we'll then open for Q&A. Yeah, I, I, I'll just say that uh, the big topics that I'm speaking about frequently with corporates at the moment are um, commonly around centralization, treasury transformation, uh, real-time treasury automation and innovation and i will take this opportunity to have a plug for our upcoming sessions which are going to drill down into precisely those topics and tim well uh, look um philip listen i i said at the start of this call it, it, it's a very exciting time in the eu you know we're globally uh, as as one big family we, we are uh, living under the shadow of, of this terrible pandemic, but but we are going to come out of it. And when we do, uh, our customers and and our um, you know potential customers that that are listening to this call at the moment, you're going to have to be ready to to spring because the opportunity is going to be there. You know we're going to be rebuilding the economies. 
you want to be able to do that with, with as little restriction or as little regulation as possible. Uh, you want to be able to do it in a time zone that spans the globe. We, we get the close of Asia in Europe. We get the start of North America in Europe. Um, you know, where better place to put your hub? Where better place to have such access to liquidity? And it is there in Europe, without a doubt. Uh, you, you know, uh, since the financial crisis, central banks have been pumping liquidity into ecosystems, not, not least of which uh, in Europe. You're spoilt for choice in terms of where you put your hubs. Eastern has gone for the Netherlands. Fantastic. But you've got Ireland, you've got Luxembourg, um, multiple hubs, freedom of cross-border uh, workforce, freedom of cross-border um, currency uh, and movements. Uh, I just think there's great opportunity. It, it's an exciting time. And, you know, if you're not prepared for that now, there's no point waiting until we come out the other side of this because the starter gun would have gone. And that's great. Okay, so maybe maybe before we go into Q&A, this, is there one key message maybe that I think each of you would, you know, want to leave, you know, the listeners with today? Uh, and I don't know, maybe, uh, Jack, we could uh, we could start with you. Kind of what would your one key message be? And then Eastern, I'm then going to ask your, your view on that as well. Yeah, thanks, Philip. I'll say, you know, Europe is unique from an innovation, a regulation and a local market practice perspective. Uh, so I would say know what you want and engage early. And Eastern? I think to take the geopolitical angle, I would say Europe is crucial from both an economic and a political perspective. And so it, it's critical for us to have a Europe that has workable rules that allows for smooth transaction of life. And so I'm looking forward to Europe, you know, ironing out the remaining details so that we can have a, a region that is working as, as it should. Thank you. Okay, so I'm now going to move into the Q&A. Uh, and, you know, so we, we, the first question on open banking, actually, and I think, Jack, you referenced this earlier, so maybe I'll come to you on that. So it's, you know, can you, can you give an example of an open banking solution? Yeah, absolutely. So just to reiterate, um, both, uh, I think all three of us actually have mentioned open banking. Uh, this is the phenomenon whereby banks and third-party providers come together uh, to provide cross-bank solutions. Um, see, we see it across the globe, but it is particularly prevalent in, in Europe. Um, and just to give you an example of how that might work, HSBC actually has a, a number of, of live solutions. One that we have in the cash management space, in the corporate cash management space, is called uh, pay by bank account. Um, uh, and the idea is that that is an online collections uh, solution that allows our corporates to collect from their customers online, regardless of who they bank with, via um, via credit transfers as opposed to as opposed to, for instance, cards or direct debits or whatever else. Okay, thank you. So just looking at my question list here, we've got coming in. Uh, maybe Tim, can I turn to you next on one of these? I think that there's a question around 
sort of traditional cash management tool. And someone's saying, what, what would you say is one of the major differences between Europe and the US? We may have lost Tim. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, oh, excuse I, me. Yeah, uh, I, I'm... Uh, did you have caught the question? So someone asking, in terms of traditional cash management tools, what would you say is one of the major differences between between Europe and the US? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always a little bit surprised at, at um, the or the lack of cash management tools that, that are on offer in the US. And, and it's not the fault of the US banks at all. And it's not through lack of demand. It, it has a lot to do with... Uh, with the, the legacy uh, laws that, that I spoke about earlier on. You know, in the European Union, uh, there are legacy products that have been around a long time, like automated physical cash concentration, the automated movement of funds from one location to another, notional pooling, where banks are happy for clients to have debit balances because they're offset uh, with credit balances from the same client. Um, but also, Jack mentioned some of the more innovative products. So, uh, you know, things like virtual accounts, for example, they've been around a long time, but there's this new generation of virtual accounts. And, and we have our own uh, uh, next generation virtual account product, which will completely change, for example, the face of uh, payment factories or treasury centres. Um, and, and these are... I would say, you know, not familiar things in the US, but because of the uh, inability of banks to be able to offer those services there because of the regulation and because of the, uh, uh, the, the laws across different states. Well, that's fine. So I'm gonna, I'll give you guys a rest. I'm actually going to answer one of the questions myself, because there's a question about HSBC's uh, strategy in the European uh, economic area and, and saying, you know, what what is our what is our intention as a firm? I think what uh, you you know you would have heard from uh, you know from Tim and, and Jack today and and Easton as well uh, as a company we we've actually been investing quite heavily in the European Union uh, you know in, in in since the Brexit referendum uh, you know in particular we've significantly scaled up our cash management capabilities in in the Netherlands in Ireland uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, you know, and as Tim said, we've got, you know, two full banking licenses in, in France and in Germany. Uh, and actually in Germany, we've we very recently fully bought out the uh, subsidiary that we have there. We, we used to have a, a minority partner who uh, uh, was also invested in that. So that is now a 100 uh, percent HSBC. So and just to you know, say, I think our our perspective is, you know, after Brexit has been we need to commit even more to the European Union. Uh, and, and make sure that you know we we're getting the investment into the European Union, which which you could say in the in the past may have been more skewed towards the UK when the UK was a member of the European Union. But what we've done consciously over the last few years uh, is invest heavily in a number of those treasury centres in the European Union in order that we can be ready to support Eastern, you know, and other clients who you know also decided to to make that move. Um, so just turning back to the, the next questions, if maybe, Jack, we can come back to you. I think there's a question on, on cash and checks. I think you, you talked about the, the demise of reducing uh, volumes earlier, you know, but, but what are the new payment types that are replacing them? Well, um, as I say, uh, 
the use of cash and checks in Europe have been uh, in demise for a number of, well, for decades really, have been just in decline rather. Um, and so as a region, we've become quite well practiced at identifying alternatives um, and developing alternatives. And what those alternatives will be will of course depend on the, on the corporates in question. Uh, it may be moving simply to um, an electronic uh, transfer. I mentioned SEPA before, uh, invoice-based. It may be online uh, collections. I mentioned if actually in my previous answer, an, an open banking solution we have, pay by bank account, which is uh, designed for precisely that. Um, and then when it comes to, to making payments, again, uh, electronic transfers, but also, um, I'll just mention uh, uh, briefly. There's a there's a solution that we've we've developed called beneficiary self management, and I think possibly they might mention it in more detail in a later session. But um, uh, it essentially is a, a solution designed precisely to act as as a digital alternative to to checks, uh, which is proving very popular. Great, thank you. Uh, so we've got a question on technology here. So it's saying is, you know, is HSBC open to uh, already developing uh, innovation around blockchain uh, technology? Uh, so I don't know, Tim, could you give your, your view on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, what the what I one of the first things I'll say is HSBC was was the first bank to to utilise uh, distributed ledger technology, which, which uh, is what blockchain uh, technology is uh, for a trade transaction. Um, but uh, I don't want to narrow us down to, to one of, you know, what, what frankly now is, is actually a little bit passe in terms of technology. You know, it was a, a little bit last year, uh, if not the year before. We uh, across the globe um, have tech labs. We, we have digital innovation businesses uh, which are looking at any number uh, of um, uh, ways to deliver our products and services or, or in fact create new products and services using the latest technology. Um, and we've mentioned APIs a few times. Uh, uh, there, there's a project at the moment where potentially customers will be able to access our products and services uh, through less familiar platforms. Uh, so rather than going through an HSBC uh, website, for example, they may be in uh, a completely unrelated platform, but have the ability uh, to access our products and services. So, so the answer to the question is absolutely yes with, with the blockchain technology and, and uh, we've, we've already got our credentials there, uh, but it goes a, a, a lot further and uh, beyond just that technology. And, and maybe I could just jump in and add a bit to that. Um, from a payments perspective, you know, I think we all remember a few years ago now, there was a lot of excitement in the mainstream media about uh, cryptocurrencies and the values that were fluctuating wildly. Um, I think now we're at a point where uh, the, the focus is a lot more on the potential ability to, uh, to make cross-border payments more streamlined. We all know, I think we've all been in that experience of making a cross-border payment and it's sort of disappearing into the ether and then trying to track it down until it gets to the beneficiary, the other side. There's a lot of uh, excitement around how blockchain could help with that. And to that end, 
people will also know that uh, central banks around the world are, are looking at central bank digital currencies. Um, and on that, I can only say that, that HSBC is, and this is, this is in uh, the public domain, is actively working with a number of central banks around the world um, at, the potential, at the potential that could present in the future. Yeah, I, and if I, I, I can just add to that, Jack. I mean, at the start when I, I said that we, we, this is a series of four uh, webcasts, actually, so that, that the fourth one we're doing, which is on uh, February 24th, actually, will deal with exactly this topic, digital innovation, uh, and we will go into more detail, uh, you know, on what we're doing on, say, blockchain, for example, and, and I'm personally involved in a, in a large client at the minute where we're for their global treasury doing uh, uh, using their their own blockchain uh, ledger, uh, you know, to, to to drive the payments flow. So, you know, we've got some really great, I think, you know, real examples. So uh, Feb 24th uh, and, you know, we, we'll, you'll get the invites for those in due course. Uh, I'm just conscious of time. We've got five minutes and there are actually still quite a number of questions that we've, we've got left. Uh, so I'm going to have to just pick and choose. I think maybe, Tim, can I come to you on this one? It's about negative interest rates. So uh, someone's asking, saying the concept of negative interest rates, uh, you know, remain you know, a bit strange, right, uh, to, to, to many folks from, from a U.S. perspective. Uh, you know, do you consider that to be a disadvantage for, for Europe in any way? To, to Philip, I think you, you being conscious of time is a code word for, for me to be brief. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and be as uh, quick as possible on that. One. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. You know, uh, yeah, in the US, uh, we speak to US clients and it is so unfamiliar to them. You know, a negative interest rate as human beings, it's hard for us to conceptualize. You give the bank a deposit, but have to pay them interest for holding the deposit. That's what a negative credit rate, uh, credit interest is. Why does it happen? It happens because central banks are trying to pump liquidity into the economy to get it going. So, so yeah, whilst it might be an alien concept to, to uh, you know, perhaps um, uh, audiences outside of the European Union who don't have negative currencies, again, it's a huge opportunity. There's liquidity there that the central banks absolutely want you, our customers, as commercial organisations to pick up and use. Um, so, no, I, I do not see that as a disadvantage at all. OK, so I think we've got time for one more and then we're going to wrap up. So, uh, Jack, I'm going to ask you this one as uh, a question about payment schemes. So uh, someone's saying one clear difference between the US and Europe is the number of payment schemes and, and currencies. Uh, and could you talk a bit about how regional tre treasuries manage this in, in practice? Yeah, yeah, good question. So um, that's absolutely true that um, I've mentioned already about SEPA, um, and that is incredibly powerful as a way of managing uh, euro transactions across those 36 countries and territories, as I keep saying. Um, but there are plenty more than uh, uh, countries and territories in Europe that are not uh, Eurozone, that, that don't have euro as their as their home currency. So what that means in practice is that we need a conversation. And that's what we do day in, day out with our with our clients. We sit down, we look at where their operations are, where the where SEPA uh, uh, and other solutions like virtual accounts that, that Tim mentioned as well, uh, open up doors for centralization. 
where there are solutions, and I'm, I'm not going to list them here, but there's a list of them that will allow for greater centralization, and where actually it just makes sense to have a local account. And then it becomes a question of, well, how do we centralize the liquidity? How do we harmonize the connectivity? How do we make sure you're dealing with as few banks as, and vendors as possible uh, to achieve those economies of scale? Great. Okay. Well, look, we're three minutes to the hour, so I'm going to uh, wrap it up and just say, you know, thank you to Eastern. Uh, thank you, Jack. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, everybody, for joining, in particular, those who submitted questions. I think it's great to uh, have it a bit uh, live. You know, like, I hope you found the session helpful. I think we'd, we'd love to hear your feedback. And there's, you know, there's a feed, feedback tab on your screens uh, that you should be able to see. I hope, you know, you think the conversation today has highlighted some topics and, you know, the subsequent events that we've got in this series of, uh, you know, webinars, you know, we will be able to explore them in more detail. Uh, so the next one we've got coming up uh, next week, actually, on February 10th, uh, that will be hosted by Jeroen uh, Bakuzen, who's the, the global co-head of our international subsidiary business. Uh, with, with a panel of uh, cash management experts, we're going to be looking at how corporates can optimize their cash flows uh, in Europe. And that will be the, the particular topic of, uh, of next week. And it'll be same time, same place. Uh, and, you know, I'll say, you know, in the meantime, if anything today has, uh, you know, caught your interest uh, or you'd like to talk about any of it, you know, with us in more detail, you know, or with Eastern, we can help make that link. I'd say, you know, don't hesitate to, to contact us. You can reach out to your to usual relationship or sales manager. Uh, and, you know, we, we can then uh, we can then come back. Uh, but just to close and I say thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Easton. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Tim. And uh, I'll say everyone stay safe and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.